Welcome to episode 14 of The Alec Hogg Show, a long-form audio biography where we delve into the lives of inspirational South Africans. Our guest in this episode is the Eastern Cape super entrepreneur, Adrian Gardner. There is much to learn from Gardner's story, mostly confirmation that when it comes to success in creating businesses, a motto like never say die trumps apparent brilliance every time. His global Mantis Hotel empire was built the hard way through pioneering, disruption and perspiration. And it was created after he'd lost everything in an economic recession that wiped out his entire portfolio of businesses. Gardner is no household name among fellow South Africans. None of his companies are listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and he's always been based in the relative backwater of Port Elizabeth. But for a brief period, he and then partner Tony Ross were the biggest names in the country's sport of kings. And that is where I kicked off our chat. Adrian, I know you, or know the name anyway, from horse racing. Were you not the owner of that magnificent mare called Enchanted Garden? Well, Alec, you're taking me back a, a, a few decades, but that was definitely an era of our lives because, you know, that year, I think we won eight Group 1s, which I don't think has been done before, plus the fact that we had Horse of the Year, Philly of the Year, and Sprinter of the Year. So it was Enchanted Garden, Fool's Home, and Sonera. So it was just one heck of a year in horse racing. And I'll always remember those years for the wonderful people that I met. Just to give you some examples, you know that obviously Gary Player was in breeding of horses. Terence Millard trains our horses. Then the great Graham Beck and I became a very good friend. Also, mm-hmm. uh, Luke Bales, you know, because Luke and I became very good friends. And then Luke got into the conservation world in a big way, you know, through Singita and his uh, properties all over Africa. So, I mean, there was another in- incredible experience by meeting Luke. It was an era in my life that I will never forget. And, you know, we uh, built that stud farm in Plettenberg Bay and everybody laughed at us and said that wouldn't work. And, you know, similarly, when I did my effort at Shemwari, I was also laughed at. So, Going back, Adrian, you're actually from further north, uh, born in Zambia. I was born in Chingola, then um, came down to... Uh, the Bulawayo, because my my father was a surveyor on the mines. And that's also an interesting story because he met my mother on a mine just outside Bulawayo called a Bushtick mine. And my mother was the daughter of the general manager. And then that mine closed. And so then he went up to northern Rhodesia, Chingola, to the copper mines there. And that was obviously, I was born in 43. And he tried to go to war, but they wouldn't let any of those people who were involved in uh, critical production of obviously minerals they needed for the war and he was stopped on his canoe trying to get across the Zambezi River to go back so they wouldn't let them go to war and then after the war and when I was about four years old we moved to Bulawayo. It was an exceptional time for me because what happened is that uh, the sort of clock came back to 12 because him and his friends decided to take that bush tech mine and they turned it into a school 
and that became Falcon College, which today I think is one of the uh, the best schools in Zimbabwe and has been going since the late 50s. And I came in in its second year of operation when there were about 50 of us at that school. And I think that that really, the, the times that I had there really ignited my entrepreneurial flair because, you know, we had to do everything. I mean, we, we had to plant all the fields there and then there were no first team. So we sort of grew up and I grew through it all going from under 13 to under 14, under 15, and then really starting to play first team in my last year of the first teams of other schools. So it was a career at school, which I will never, ever forget. And I can only thank my father and his friends, my mother, for actually having the vision to turn what was a derelict uh, mine, but with a lot of resources and buildings, into a fabulous school. Was he entrepreneurial? No, you know, he was always always worked for corporate, quite funnily enough. And then at the age of um, 60, he retired um, and came down to Cape Town. And, um, you know, we were very lucky because I was living in Cape Town then. So we, we became quite close. I must tell you, like an elder brother at that stage. And I think I've been very fortunate in that I've been married now for 52 years. My eldest uh, daughter uh, is 50 and I have a grandchild of 25. And then I have the two sons, uh, Paul and Murray, who are in their late 40s. And, you know, so you grow up like that. And they, they like younger brothers to me. And fortunately, both in the business. And a very close family. Thankfully, and I take my hat off to my wife. And I think our upbringing, hers and mine, you know, obviously no eruptions in any of the families, uh, no divorces or anything. So, And uh, she's been a, a great matriarch for all of us. Adrian, I don't know if you follow Warren Buffett, but often at the Berkshire Hathaway AGMs, they get asked, he and Charlie Munger, the deputy chairman, they get asked all kinds of questions about life. But one that sticks with me, is what is the most important decision that you would ever make? And the answer from both of them was the person you marry. And another question in a similar line was, how do you get a good wife? And Charlie Munger's response was, deserve her. I'm glad you shared those incredible words with me, which I hadn't heard before, but I, I relate to them. There's no question about it. My success in business has been largely because of the value that she gave to family life, the value and the importance she gave to bringing up children, to their education, to make sure that they knew that they always had something behind them. You deserve what you get. I would just like to say that although I've deserved a good life, well, I think I don't know that, but I think she's deserved as much as I've achieved. So it's been an incredible partnership, you know, to know that we've stuck with each other, we've developed with each other, we've lived together. And I think COVID has proved it even further because this is the first time in my life in eight months that I've actually only traveled twice. And that's in the last month where normally I'd be traveling out of the home probably two weeks every month overseas or through Africa or whatever. So we've been living on top of each other for uh, the eight months. We never had a servant in the house. She's had to do it all. I've obviously do my bit. But it, you know, it just shows you that living together, a friendship that's developed over many years becomes, as we call it today, a marriage. But it's a marriage of a different kind. Extraordinary and lovely story. But going back to where we know you from, the Eastern Cape. Here you are, this, this lad from Zimbabwe, educated at Cape Town, ended up 
in Port Elizabeth, in the Eastern Cape, and your roots now seem to be very firmly in that area. Why so? I got married in 1968. Shirley Ann was bought and bred up in Cape Town, was a qualified nurse, worked at the hospitals there. And then when I told her in 1969 that we were coming to Port Elizabeth, you know, it wasn't a, a, a great uh, message to give her. But, you know, I must just go back a bit as well and tell you about my great achievements as a, a student at UCT. Well, I did a BCom degree, which in theory was three years. It took me seven years. So I did four years full time and I'd got to just over half the degree. And then I went and got a job at SPA in the accounts department. So I woke up one morning and said, you know, I've been beaten by something very, very silly, an ap- academic qualification. So while everybody else was enjoying their life, I went back at night to finish my degree. So that's where the extra three years took. And I was determined that I was going to get this degree, a BCom. So I worked at SPA. And then while I was at SPA, you know, in those days, there were regional wholesalers who did the distribution. And there was a wholesaler in Port Elizabeth called Steph Rack and a guy called Bruce McWilliams. And we got on incredibly well. However, while I was doing my studying at UCT in those three years after I shouldn't have been at university, I was very intrigued with our marketing lecturer. And I really enjoyed her style and what she taught us and everything. And we obviously got on well. And she went back to her husband, who was a general manager of Golden Arrow Bus Company. And she said to her husband, you know, I know you're looking for an assistant. I would take this guy called Adrian Gardner. And he interviewed me. You know, I was not that keen. I didn't really want to go to a big corporate. Anyway, he said to me, look, come and meet the main guy, which was a guy called Paswalski, who was the head of Golden Arrow. And he impressed me no end. And I went there and I took the job. And I must tell you, it lasted about six months, if that. And all I learned in that six months was how to play the stock exchange. Because it really gave me nothing to do. I was bored stiff. And he was one of those general managers that wouldn't uh, pass on anything, wouldn't delegate. So then I got hold of the Steph Rack wholesaler. Bruce said to me, look, come and join me. So I came up to Port Elizabeth in 1969, joined him in the accounts department, and then I graduated to um, sales and marketing. And then we started opening a new brand called You Pay and Take It which we opened all over South Africa. We opened in George, in Kimberley, in Bethlehem, in Bloemfontein, in Worcester. And we had this whole chain, which we opened in about, remember I started with him in 69, and we sold in 1974 to Metro Cash and Carry. And that had been an incredible five years with Bruce because he really showed me how to work. I mean, we worked every night. I stayed with him before I found a home. And then in 74, we sold everything to Metro Cash and Carry, and he had a two-year assignment or a restraint that he had to work with him. And I said, Bruce, I'd really like to leave now. Could I go? And I, I got a share, a payout of, because I had a minority share in the wholesaler in Bloemfontein, and my payout then was 10,000 Rand. And with that 10,000 Rand, I managed to buy 50% of Penguin Pools, and that was the start of a new era. You're listening to The Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. Were you able to replicate that expansion? Tell you what, from Penguin Pools, and you will remember, why is he? Because he was such a, you know, he was involved in that huge company. He bought Penguin Pool Quip Holdings. You remember Penguin Pool Quip Holdings was on the stock exchange? That's right, yes. And uh, that went uh, into virtually to liquidation. And Bill Fenter, Bill Fenter bought it, believe it or not. And obviously, you know who Bill Fenter is. Altron, indeed. Yeah. And so Bill controlled the franchises of Penguin. And also Pool Quip Holdings. And so Bill and I became quite good friends. 
and we, we, we went to uh, conferences that we used to have at Penguin Pools. But from Penguin, to give you an example, is that in winter, I had the equipment and we really did that work because not many people would build swimming pools in the winter. So I used those things and I said, guys, we've got to go and build something else. So we started building tennis courts. The next thing I started building uh, roads and we built uh, quite a big road in uh, the Transkei. And then I got involved in, in uh, roads all over uh, the Eastern Cape. And then 1979 came. And, you know, you, that was really the first real inflation. And we didn't have any escalation in our contracts. Then I had a big bad debt in Mossel Bay. Somebody went bankrupt there and couldn't pay me. And that collapsed my house of cards. So in 1979, I lost everything and had to start again. And I'd had signed surety to an, a, a number of uh, banks and on HPs. And I asked all those people concerned there, please let me pay you back because I don't want to be sequestrated personally. And they all let me, me pay them back because in that era, not only had we developed a construction company, we also developed a transport company and we also started the first crane hire company in Port Elizabeth. And prior to all of that, I'd also started uh, the messaging company in Port Elizabeth called Pageboy, where you used to get a beep, 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 phone the office. And I don't think I should have sold that because then probably would have been in mobile phones today. And I also bought, brought the first spring door to Port Elizabeth and opened a company called Easy Doors, from the weights that were on the doors to spring doors. So that was quite an era for me, from 74 to 79. And then when you lose everything, it was my university of life. And that's when you really come to understand that if you've got five real friends, you can count them on one hand. That taught me a lot about life. I won't regret that. And I managed to start again, pay back the creditors that I'd signed for and got into business again. And then I learned that if I've got the company back, which I did uh, on a compromise offer, I also had a tax break that I could use going forward. So it was quite a journey that and I, I say I regretted it for one minute, but it was a mistake. And if you don't learn by your mistakes, you don't deserve to be in business. So interesting things you remember. As you were talking about signing surety, I recall Johan Rupert once saying in his inimitable manner, the person who signs surety is a fool with a pen. Have you signed surety since then? You know what? He's 100% right. learned is that, you know, if you do sign a surety, which I have done since then, I make sure that I've got more value in the asset than the person I'm borrowing from. I don't have any problem in signing a surety if I'm definitely in control and got far more value than who I'm, I'm busy uh, signing with. Adrian, many people, having had that experience, become gun-shy, find themselves a little cave in a corporate somewhere and don't ever try again. You clearly haven't aren't made of that stuff. What was it in your personality and, and your environment and perhaps your family that made you decide when you had gone through that very difficult experience that entrepreneurship meant not giving up? You see, we'd learned how to do swimming pools. You know, besides the Penguin Pool uh, franchise that I had in Port Elizabeth, at one stage we owned every franchise here. So that was Pride Pools, Coastal Murray Pools, a Fiberglass Pool, and then one of the conferences that we had that Bill Fenter organized, they brought out a guy from America. And I'll never forget him. Him and I got on incredibly well. And he told me that he gunited pools were to half Olympic sizes. So after that, I went over there and I, f I found out how he did it. I came back here and I did probably the first in South Africa half Olympic gunite pool, which is still here at uh, Victoria School here. 
And I got back into the pool business because, you know, it was easy to get back into. I did have a bit of a reputation in it, and you got quite a lot of money up front, then managed to get back into the transport business, and then, believe it or not, I managed to buy the crane business back, who the people that had bought it from me I put it into a mess, and so I got that back. So it was back to transport, back to cranes, back to swimming pools, and that all happened, and it was going helter-skelter. And then as you started this uh, interview, it started with, now how the hell did I get into horses? <laughs> and in those days, you will remember that if you were in the agricultural business or in other business, you could take the profit from one company into another company and enjoy the tax benefit of it. And one of them was agriculture. And obviously, horse raising was agriculture. And believe it or not, Baron Duplessis actually came and opened, officially opened our farm at Rudderfontein in Plettenberg Bay. We were going very well then. I had a partner at the time in the crane business, and we decided, and he was interested in horses. That's how I got into the horse business. And then I decided, no, I would prefer breeding rather than racing. So that's where the breeding started at Plettenberg Bay. During the, those times, is Zimbabwe was under sanctions, and all their minerals, bulk minerals, weren't obviously allowed to go through Byra or anywhere there. They all came through Port Elizabeth. So with our crane business, we used to operate dump sites and then load the ships when they came in. So we had a shipping business here, franchise to be able to stevedore our, our goods from Zimbabwe out of here. So we had quite a lucrative uh, business going. And then I'll never forget, I was in Arari and I got a call from Tim Hutchinson, who was a lawyer in Plettenberg Bay, to say, Adrian, I've got a buyer for the farm. I said, Tim, it's not for sale. So he said, well, come and see me. And I was there. And we flew back on the Thursday night. I went down on Friday and I'd signed the deal by Sunday. So that just indicates to you that everything has a price. But I was left with probably 300 horses in terms of breeding, foals at foot, yearlings and horses in racing. And we put that all into Sydney Press's public company on the stock exchange. I think you'll recall that he had a, a company there and obviously became a, a, a shareholder in there because I got from my horses cash some ordinary shares and some pressman shares. And then in the end, we turned that into a cash sale when we sold all those horses. Goodness me. And when did Shamwari come onto the picture? Because if you, okay, so you're in the, the horse business, um, it's, yeah, it's so not now, too far away from the, from the game business. Yeah, so now what happens is that I'm sitting with a bit of money, having sold Rudolfontein, the farm, and I said to myself, you know, this is what I really want to do. I want my patch of Africa. You're not going to be, went back to Zimbabwe, looked for a farm there, looked at something in Botswana, looked all over the place. And then I said to myself, you know, if I don't find something close to where I am, I'm not going to make a success of it because I want to be involved. And I was sitting at a cricket match here. A friend of mine sitting next to me, a guy called Rudman, said to me, there's a farm for sale near a little town called Alistair. It's only 1,200 hectares. Go and have a look at it. And it was a little hunting farm. And I went there and looked at it. Oh, and I tell you what, it was owned by a doctor and some specialists in, uh, a specialist in Johannesburg. And I gave him a ring. You know, and I bought that farm, 1,200 hectares, for under 300 rand a hectare. And I had a look at it. And then, thankfully, the farm next door came up. So then I had 3,000 hectares. And then the, uh, the Eastern Cape had gone through seven years of drought, which we're busy going through now. We've had a few years of drought. And then the next farm came and the next farm came. And then before I knew it, I had 11,000 hectares. And I said to myself, now, how the hell do I commercialize this? And then I did a lot of research. And fortunately, there was a lot of research done here. And a, a guy called Skeed wrote a whole book on what animals existed here when the 1820 settlers came in. And then when I looked at that and realized what was here, I thought to myself, wow, if I can put this back here, 
this is going to be something special. Because not only will I have the big five, I'll be the first malaria-free big five. It'll have a lot of advantages. It's only an hour from Port Elizabeth. And just to give you an idea that how backward things were, then, in Alistale, there was still the exchange where you would phone the exchange and say, I would like to speak to Dave. And they or they'd answer it and say, no more a belief. And I'd say, well, could I speak to Dave? And they'd say, no, he's at dinner with Sansa. I'll put you through there. So that's how, that's, I'm talking 1989 now. And that's how it started, putting those farms together and then to work out now, how do I commercialize this? And I said to myself, you know, what's made a success of a lot of things I've done is that how can I get endorsements for what I'm doing? And, you know, I looked and looked and I really found the right guy. It was a guy called Dr. Ian Player, who I'm sure everybody listening will have heard of. And Ian, you know, obviously was very involved in the towel and all the game reserves there in saving the white rhino from extinction. And, you know, I went to listen to him here. He was doing a talk at Volkswagen here because he had the Terranova Award, which Volkswagen used to get to give to conservationists. And I listened to this and I spoke to him and I said to him, uh, you know, please, Ian, come and have a look at what I'm doing. And he was, he listened, he was a real gentleman, but he gave me his telephone number. You're listening to the Alec Hogg Show from Biz News. And one day on his way to Cape Town, he got off the plane here at nine in the morning, spent the day with me, went on to Cape Town, and that was the start of an incredible friendship and mentorship that I'll never, ever forget as long as I live. Because not only did he introduce me to uh, his brother, but many other people that uh, and conservationists all over the world that he made and asked them to come to see what we were doing. So I got all these endorsements. He helped me with the translocations. You have no idea of the nightmares that we went through. When we brought in a family of elephant, when we brought our lions in and they were waking up in a plane because we didn't have enough drugs. And it was just a, a, a experiment of second to none to put it together. But, you know, thankfully, because of the team that I put together and what we've achieved today, I tell everybody, we've made the Eastern Cape into a wildlife destination because there's 16 now similar destinations as Shamwari, that uh, cattle and sheep farms have converted their farms to proper wildlife uh, conservation areas. Ian Player, did he believe in the Eastern Cape that it could be returned back to, as you say, it was during the time of the 1820 settlers? Was he one of the motivating factors that gave you the confidence to make the investment, which at the time uh, must have seemed high risk? There's no question that it was high risk, but I mean, he was absolutely convinced. He was saying this rewilding is the way of the future and he wants private people to get involved, you know, because he had worked most of his life for Natal Parks and he really wanted to see private people doing more of this. So he was behind me like you could not believe, Alec. I mean, he would come down regularly. He'd spend nights with me. Do you know that he even gave me the name The Mantis Collection? He was staying with me. And I said to him, this was the year 2000, I said, Ian, please help me, man. I've got to come up with a name because we've got five properties now and I want to create my own brand. I'd had international brands come to me and ask me to join them and all the rest. And I said, no, I would rather have my own brand. And he went to, he was staying with me and he came back and came up in the morning and he said, well, you achieved two things. You kept me awake all night, but I've got your name. And, you know, he spoke to me about the people that influenced his life were two, mainly his Zulu guide and mentor uh, Kubo and Tobela, and then Sir Lawrence van der Post. And he thought about them, and he thought about Kubo and Tobela was never frightened of the bigger animals, the lion, elephant, rhino, could, he could see and hear them. 
And then he thought about Sir Lawrence, you know, who was very involved in saving the Bushmen. And he thought about the Bushmen in Botswana. And the same thing happened. They were never scared of a elephant, lion, uh, any of those big animals, again, because they could see and hear them. But when, then they were transient people. And then they'd move from one place to another, but always there would be a praying mantis that would look o- over them, and they actually called it the Hottentot's God. And That's he right. said to me, your properties are small. You let your general managers ha- uh, take power of it, call it the Mantis Collection. And then we took that name and we created the acronym Man and Nature Together is Sustainable. And that's been a journey. Interesting to think that you started off by looking at a little hunting farm as an investment, and it's become a journey that now defines your life. No question, because you know from Shamwari, then we also pioneered Senbona, and then we got one of the first concessions in the Kruger called Jock. And, um, you know, and the people have asked me, why did I sell going forward? Well, you know, in 2008, I sold um, Shamwari, Jock, and Senbona to... Uh, Dubai world, and you remember too, at the end of 2008, the, the world financial crisis, and uh, end of 2007, 2008, and I got my check at Easter 2008, and I'd sold 70%. And then, you know, with the crisis that happened for the next few years after that, Dubai world took the sort of ideal is that they're not going to pursue this, these investments in Africa, because they took me all over, all over Africa. Uh, to Rwanda, where we're very big now, we did a, a whole master plan for Akagera Game Reserve there, which has now been implemented by African parks. And we went to Senegal, and we went to Zambia, and we went to Zimbabwe, and all these things. But then they closed the book and said, no, it's over and done with. So I had the option to get out. And so I put my 30%, and I got out of those three. But I managed to keep my uh, home at Shamwari on, on 400 hectares, the Founders Lodge, which I've turned into a lodge, which has full traversing rights and a full museum of the history of everything there. So that was a lucky break. Now, people obviously say, but surely you have, you, you reminisce and think, why did you sell that? But if you didn't do that, I wouldn't have the other opportunities that we've had. For example, we own that whole Zambezi Queen collection on the Chobe Zambezi. Got into a lot of other things which I couldn't have done if we hadn't done it. Two years ago, I sold 50% of our brand mantis and our management company, not our properties, to Accor. So I don't know what's made me do it, but I've just been very good on my timing to be able to get out. Before. I mean, just look where we are now. How bad is it? Well, you know, obviously every major hospitality company in the world has been, you know, hit below the belt, second to none. So, I mean, there's no no question about that. So, you know, obviously they, they've left me to it. We were very lucky. We had an exceptional year in 2019. So we haven't had to borrow any money. We've been living off earnings, and we've certainly managed to make some money, not out of the hospitality side, but we have an incredible development division. So to give an example, we're now the biggest hotel chain in Rwanda, where we have now six properties which we manage or developing or whatever might be going. We're putting a boat on Lake Kivu, four owners, and we will manage it. So, and we're busy in Cape Verde and in Bahrain. So we're busy in a lot of places around Africa and other parts of the world because my son Paul runs the operation in London. And I did it for three reasons. One, we needed a distribution program. Secondly, we needed a, uh, a loyalty program. And thirdly, a condition of the deal is that we wanted to start an NGO that could make a difference. Hence, we started the Community Conservation Fund Africa. We're not implementers. So then I got onto my board African Parks, Tusk and the Wilderness Foundation, which I chaired after Ian Player made, uh, made me the chairman, and then I'm now the patron of that. 
and I have something in common with the royal family now because um, Prince Harry and Prince William are patron of Prince Harry's of uh, African parks and uh, Prince William Tusk. So, so they come up with these things and we collect money. Now, how I wanted to collect the money, and this was quite important when I did the deal with Accor, because Accor have in the region of 60 million members on their loyalty program, plus another 60 million from China. So all I said to them was, just give me access to that program where I can write to those members and say, would you burn a dollar worth of points towards the following conservation programs? And CCFA can be America, Australia, Asia, Antarctic, Arctic, wherever you like in the world. We've gone quite well for two years, but we've got a hell of a lot to do. In this part of my life is that I want to make a difference. I want to make conservation and education priorities on the planet. Was that part of the whole deal with ACOR that you could create this? Yeah, because we both put in significant funds to kick it off. So out of the proceeds I got and they put in, so we kicked off the fund with quite a substantial amount of money which we distributed to those three beneficiaries to make sure they implemented. So that was really one of the prime reasons to do the deal because I wanted to make this difference in terms of, of finding a channel where I could collect real money and make a difference. You did explain that after 1979 and the difficulties that your business interests went through then, that you subsequently bought a lot of them back. Dubai World got into big trouble, as we well know, and Pearl Valley, for instance, was bought by Val de Vie. Was there an opportunity ever for you to buy back those companies that you had sold them? They sold San Borna and Jock, fortunately, to a trust company in Switzerland which I think is they're, they're, they're obviously caretaking that very well. They actually like Shamwari very much, and they've just put in $20 million into it. When I did my deal to my 30% with Dubai World, one of the things that I had to take as payment was the director's house at Pearl Valley. And it was the only house on Pearl Valley that was not subject to a mortgage to the bank. So then the bank got hold of me and said, look, we have this right to build a hotel here. Would you come and look at it? So I came and looked at it, and we were busy with it, and then they came back to me and they said, no, nope, we've decided we're selling. So I said, okay, well, what's the price? So I said, no, that's fine, I'll buy it. And then they came back a week later and said, look, we were made a bit of an issue here because we did actually offer it to Valdivie as well. So I said, that's fine. I know Martin Fenter. I sold him a plot at uh, San Borna. Why don't we do it together? So, in fact, Pearl Valley is owned 50% by Valdivie and 50% by Mantis and a partner that I have there called Peter Wasserfeld. How do you find these partners that you can trust, given uh, what happened to you in 1979? And you said earlier that you learn when you go through tough times who your real friends are. How have you been able to apply those learnings to these partnerships that you've created, Accor, uh, with um, the Pearl Valley Hotel and so on? Probably in the earlier days, I was the main financier. You know, today in the partnerships that I do is that we, we put in the money equally. So we're both at risk. So I'm not just carrying the can for the full amount. So I think that, that that's been the sort of lesson. I suppose you get mature and you realize when you're doing these things is that you're dealing with people who understand what they want and the vision, and we agree the vision beforehand. So uh, all of those have been good. I mean, the ACO one at this stage is the interesting part about that one was that they took my top development manager and uh, took him into ACOR and then obviously ACOR asked him about Mantis and they were battling a bit in southern Africa. 
you can't believe the intrigue that they have in our brands and they want to see it work and because we're involved in making a difference and it's just not a city hotel that wants to see how many beds you can fill they see the difference that we want to make on uh, we, uh, we always call it our planet our gift our responsibility and you know and that's what we've uh, been doing all along is to try and send that ethic loud and clear and it's resonated believe me Something that I only discovered when preparing for this interview was that there is a university in Port Alfred of which you are instrumental in creating called the Stenden University. 100% owned by the university in the Netherlands. What happened was they were on a, a show at ITB in Berlin and they had a stand there and a friend of mine went and spoke to them and they had a few satellite campuses around the world and they were very interested in doing one in South Africa. And this person owned the Grand Hotel in Port Alfred. We had the Halliards Hotel, and they needed a hotel to be able to do practical learning at. They came and sent a consultant out, and we managed to convince him that Port Alfred was the right place to do it, rather than Cape Town or Grahamstown or whatever. And because we had the hotel there, we could convert the Grand Hotel, which was part of it, into the campus and the lecture rooms, which we did. And I'm not sure if you're aware that it's the only place in southern africa where you can do a degree in hotel management and hospitality you can do a bcom degree in it and in the other we've added a second degree in disaster management it's the only um, university in the world where you can do a semester in conservation and lodge management and it's been so successful that course that we actually rent and will run an entire game reserve by the students and the uh, people that come there obviously the head lecturer and everything and uh, it's been in a phenomenal case, and I've headed the board for many years now, and uh, still head the board. And it's just been, and I've, we've put a, I've put a lot of kids through on bursaries, and it's it's been such a pleasure to see how well they've done. I mean, the the one guy who was head of the university, uh, he's now in, in Holland. Other guy went there that a bursary kid of mine. He now heads up Accor's hotels in South Africa. The pleasure you get out of changing somebody's life and seeing the success they've had out of me just giving them a little bit of money to educate themselves has been as rewarding as making a huge profit out of a business. How big is it? So we get a lot of foreign students that come in. The students that come from, from Stenden and like to do a semester outside of Holland. So we peak at, at, at about 300 kids during the year. But we're trying to enlarge it even more. But it's, it's successful. I mean, it runs well. It's a private university. Obviously, during these uh, incredibly difficult times, it hasn't been easy. So it's, it's been a great success. It's been we're running for over 20 years now. And the people of Port Alfred, do they like it? No, they love it because, I mean, there's, there's income that they wouldn't have had. No, I don't think there's any doubt about that at all. I think it's been a great asset to Port Alfred. Adrian, you said right in the beginning that you were born in 1943. So that suggests you're 77 years old. Uh, when you look back on your life now, what might you have done differently on the one hand? And secondly, because you have been very entrepreneurial, how would you answer a question on whether an entrepreneur is made or born? You know, I, I, I often get asked that question and I find it quite difficult to um, answer because when I uh, you know, just at the moment, we're looking at something with a foundation to do something out here. And I had a long meeting with him yesterday and today. And, you know, I just listen to them and I say, I hear all the theory that's expounded. Then I say, but shouldn't we do it this way? And you can just see, you know, how their minds change. So 
maybe I just see it from a different perspective because I have a great saying, I think, is talk is cheap, money buys the whiskey. Mm-hmm. So how do we monetize the talk? You know, how do I turn it into something that can be successful? So I think my brain's always working in that way to say, okay, we've got a great vision, but can we actually make it work practically? Now, is that not my entrepreneurial flair that's coming out to say, how do I make it work? Instead of just saying, do I do this, do I do that? Look, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And when I look back and see, you know, should I have done this, should I have done that? To an extent, I've still trusted people, but not to any extent that's going to change my life, which uh, they still, I still get let down. That's a chance that I take because... I see the other side of the coin be able to say, wow, if we if this did come right, it could make a significant difference. So as I said to you in the beginning is that, you know, we've made a difference to the Eastern Cape. Well, it's not me, it's the team. It's, it's something that I think that our legacy will always be there, that the Eastern Cape is definitely a wildlife destination today. And the various other things that we've done in the town here, uh, it's a great place to live, believe it or not. We've, we've loved it. The kids have loved, uh, been brought up here, although none of them live here now. I mean, tell you that we also started a travel company called Guilty's Travel that my son and his partner run in Cape Town, uh, probably one of the most successful travel companies prior to COVID uh, in South Africa for the top end of the market. And it started it in, in my bedroom in my flat in Port Elizabeth, the head office is in Cape Town. But sadly, they've had to retrench a lot of people. So it's been a wonderful journey. But You know, sometimes I say to myself at this age, what should I be doing now? And I don't know because, I mean, if I I don't know if I could stay at home and and do something or do nothing. I think I would uh, would crumble. Are you easing back or is 77 the new 57? You know, I can tell you now, I don't think I've ever had it so tough in my life. You have no idea how bad this COVID is in our industry. You know, so I just say to my wife, hell, I just hope today I can go through today without an issue, without something popping up. But it's at the moment, it's very, very tough, Alec. You know, it's just, we've got, we've closed seven properties permanently. Uh, an eighth one probably we're going to close. It's very tough at the moment in this industry. And I'm sure you realize it and anybody else with any knowledge of tourism or that will understand just how bad it is. Eight of how many? Well, you know, in our, in our portfolio, we've got about 30. But we, we're going to grow that that eight. I'm not too worried about because you know one of the, a lot of them are small properties that you know like a house in Bishop's Court that we was a full let. We had a lease property in Port Elizabeth that I got out of the lease of. Sadly, we had to close two lodges in Natal. I managed to sell, sell a small um, boutique in uh, Pretoria, and then uh, overseas, you know, there's a couple that we ran there that are either gone into liquidation. So it's you know it's other people's properties besides my own. But what about the future then? When you look back on this long journey that you've had in South Africa, which is a country that clearly has been very good to you and you've been very good to it, how are you seeing our future in the next 10, 15 years? Obviously, we we talk about it a lot. Today, I went out to our lodge and coming back and I see all the trucks on the road carrying manganese. saying to myself, why isn't it on the railways? Then you learn that the railways are in difficulty. You know, you, you look at all these SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, and you say to yourself is, oh, it's sad. It's really sad when you see the, the turmoil that they're in. And I had the great pleasure of meeting her, a Margaret Thatcher area. She was such a wonderful lady. And, you know, when she took over, London was in a four-day week. It was unionized. It was in a total mess. And she took on this thing and, and privatized it. I mean, this is what I can't work out 
is why we don't try and develop the businesses instead of trying to control them in-house and messing them up. You know, there's a lot of negativity out there. I've, uh, I've had the pleasure of, of, of knowing all our presidents. Uh, obviously, I knew um, probably the best uh, uh, president in Becky and his wife who became family friends of ours. And then I didn't really, and I don't regret it, know President Zuma. But I knew Cyril from the days when Graham Beck introduced me to him. And, you know, we've all got great high hopes, and I hope that he really does pull it through. But I understand where he is, and it's, it's a very difficult situation that he currently finds himself in. It's hard to understand where we're going to go. But, uh, you know, having lived here for most of my life, I'm, I'm still an optimist, and, but I just hope that we do pull through. And what about Africa as a whole, given your experience on the continent? Well, I'll tell you what, I said to my Premier here, a very nice guy, the other day I said to him, Oscar, do me a favour, why don't you come with me to Rwanda? Rwanda's got 12 million people. We've got 8 million people in this province. Can we not follow the example of what they've done there? And I know that uh, President uh, of Rwanda comes in for criticisms now and again and all the rest of it, but my gosh, has he got investment there? Has he, has he turned that country around? In the same time that we've had independence, in the same time since they had that horrible tragedy in their country, but, I mean, you go there today, you would be amazed. You will see that every single person has a title deed. There's no litter there. Business is done quickly. We deal with government on a lot. We run three government hotels. Decisions are made. And, and I just say to myself, why can't we follow those sort of examples? Why have we got to go through this torture that we're going through when we see all this capture that's happening? It's quite sad. Optimist or pessimist? Uh, I'm, I'm think, bring the entrepreneur that I am, I'm always an optimist. I always see the, you know, I, I've, I've said about this COVID, uh, Alec, I've climbed a lot of mountains in my life, but I've always seen a view. This is the first time in my life where I'm climbing a mountain and I can't see the view because I don't know when this thing's going to end and I don't know what the consequence of it is. So am I an op optimist in terms of the health and whatever's going on? You know, until we get the vaccine, I think we're in, in serious trouble. As you know, the Eastern Cape at the moment is a hot spot. As far as the country's concerned, I would like to think, think that sanity will prevail and that they will see that in the end, you know, they have to uh, embrace more from business and learn from business instead of trying to be the state-owned enterprises, which up to date haven't worked, haven't shown a good example, lost a lot of money and haven't created employment. You've been listening to another Biz News production. Be sure to catch all our podcasts by subscribing to Biz News Radio on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, or by visiting biznews.com. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.